podcast one production. I've always had a bit of a sweet tooth, but since having kids, it's gone next level. I've actually gotten into my car and driven to the shops after dinner one night because I was so hell-bent on a magnum. I actually remember going, this is what members on the 12-week body transformation would comment on, and I'd never actually experienced that. The power, like I used to think, I can't believe, you know, someone is having such strong cravings that they would like drive through McDonald's at one in the morning or something like that. And I remember thinking, God, like, like is that a lack of willpower or, you know, is what is this? And then here I was going through the same thing and feeling out of control and kind of feeling like it was almost like an out-of-body experience. Like I, I really didn't have a say in the matter. My body was driving itself to the shop no matter what. This is Healthy Her with Amelia Phillips, and in today's episode, we are unlocking the mysteries of our mind. I don't know about you, but since having kids, I have felt like my brain works completely differently. And it turns out that there's research that shows that having children does actually rewire our brains, which can impact our moods, our motivation, and even our food cravings. Like our brain has literally changed, and it often stays that way. So what are these changes? How do they impact us? And what can we do about them? Paul Taylor is a neuroscientist from the Body Brain Performance Institute. He's here to tell us how we can be at our best by optimizing the connection between our bodies and our brain. Thanks for coming on today, Paul. My pleasure. Today, I particularly want to focus on peak performance for Mm -hmm. the mum's brain or peak optimization so we can be better equipped at life. Um, The first question I want to ask you is, how does having children change a woman's brain? The answer is quite significantly. And firstly, we need to understand the brain is essentially a neuroplastic organ. So it adapts to the environmental stimuli around it. And there's three periods. Well, there's always been recognized two periods of massive neuroplasticity. Now we know there's a third. So the first one is in the first two years of your life. And and I liken it to the brain is like a bonsai tree. And when you clip and prune a bonsai tree, you you know, you dictate the shape of it. You know, you put it in a certain size of a a plant box and and that restricts its growth and all of this sort of stuff. So in the first two years, we're born with about 200 billion neurons. By the age of two, we've lost about 100 billion of those through what we call synaptic pruning. So basically, it's the experience that starts to shape that brain just like a bonsai tree. And then the brain goes through another period of neuroplastic pruning uh, around puberty. And the hormones that are released during puberty help to drive that. But now we know that pregnancy is actually a third period of neuroplasticity. And it's essentially a recent um, study in Nature Neuroscience showed that there are significant changes in, in grey matter. So it's reduced number of brain cells reduced in some parts of the brain. And everybody was like, oh my God, this is really bad. But actually what we now know is the brain goes through adaptive neuroplasticity. Your brain is actually adapting to being a mother. So hold on, just rewind for a second. You said that we lose brain cells. Can you please 
tell me about this. I'm freaking out a little bit. Yeah, look, lots of people freak out about that, but it, it appears that it's not really that much of a negative because whilst you lose some brain cells, um, you actually improve processing in certain areas of the brain. So it's like the brain just becomes a bit more specialised. And we know that this whole idea of losing some brain cells it isn't really as bad as we used to think. So what we know in the mum that there are increases in the areas of the brain that are to do with what we call social cognition and also theory of mind and emotion processing. So what that is all about is preparing you for motherhood. It drives attachment. It makes you more emotional, increases your theory of mind, which is about what other people might be thinking and what's happening in their world, which is obviously really important when you become a mum. You need to think less about yourself and really a lot about that infant, particularly when our infants are born pretty useless, really, compared to the animal kingdom. They're defenseless, so they absolutely depend on mum. And it appears that our brains are the brains of mums actually just become much more specialised um, whenever you go through that pregnancy. Thinking about others, connecting into others, increased emotionality, which is where you were saying you're starting to cry much more, you're much more emotional, and that's deliberate. And it's really about then that connection to others, particularly your infant. Oh, okay. Well, that makes me feel a lot better. So let's talk about how our brains actually become more specialised or like a sniper. Can you explain how neuroplasticity actually shapes our brain? Yeah, so neuroplasticity is a phenomenon where the brain basically adapts. And we know that having a brain high in neuroplasticity is really important for long-term brain health. And for instance, it's been noted as one of the best protections against dementia and other forms of Alzheimer's disease. And there's been some um, really good studies that have come out about what actually supports neuroplasticity. So one thing that we know is that novelty is really important. Doing new stuff for your brain, meeting new people, going to new places, even things as little as going to work a different way or, or, or going for a walk a different way, just having those new places, going on holidays to new places. But then bigger things like learning a new language, a musical instrument, these are kind of long-term strategies. Um, and all, anything that is about novelty helps your brain to actually adapt and form new connections and increase this neuroplasticity. But we also know that there's two other things in terms of our lifestyle that really support it. One is exercise, and exercise really provides all of the building blocks for neuroplasticity. So it, it provides something called BDNF, brain-derived neurotropic factor, which helps to create new brain cells and to facilitate those connections and strengthen the connections. And we know that having a diet high in omega-3 fatty acids, particularly EPA and especially DHA, is really important for supporting neuroplasticity because the brain is about 80% fat and about 20% of it is this stuff called DHA, which is important for coating the neurons and for, for all of those connections and creating that highly connected neuroplastic brain. So they would really be the top three, would be novelty, diet, and exercise. And I would also add another one is then having good sleep um, because that's when the brain is cleaning itself out of toxins. Obviously, sleep is a huge one for us mums. How does that play out in the real world and what can we do about it? Yeah, look, l lack of sleep is pretty horrible for the brain. I mean, I, I'm ex-military and I went through combat survival and resistance to interrogation training and, and a big part of that is sleep deprivation because um, sleep deprivation makes you uh, much more emotional, much more stress reactive, 
more prone to anxiety. It also induces changes in certain hormones. So ghrelin, your hunger hormone goes up after even a one night's bad sleep. Leptin, which governs voluntary physical activity, that actually reduces as well. We also know that poor sleep significantly increases your risk of anxiety and depression. So this is what we call a bi-directional relationship in that if you have a sustained period of poor sleep, you're much more likely or much more prone to develop anxiety and depression or predisposed, I think is the proper term. And if you then develop anxiety and depression, it then can further impact upon your sleep. So it becomes this really, really nasty, vicious cycle. And it's really, it's, it's a short-term thing that we all need to get through. But I think this is exacerbated by today's society and the kind of breakup of society. So if you look in traditional hunter-gatherer villages, whatever they may be, or traditional societies, you, you may have heard the term, it takes a village to raise a child. Um, because what often happens is that the grandparents or the aunts or the uncles, they all pitch in. And so that mom actually gets that rest that she needs. But there's a lot of people who don't have those support networks. Uh, for instance, we didn't have those support networks and it, and it makes it a whole heap harder, as well as those normal changes that are, are to do with, with those things that are happening. Absolutely. And even in society, uh, up until recently, that was a real badge of honour to be super busy and to push through mm. and to just, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, surviving off four hours of sleep. And I know in a mum situation, sometimes there's nothing we can do about it. But I have noticed in the last few years, a real shift to prioritising sleep, to making a daytime nap socially acceptable. And I can see, for me personally, having prioritised sleep, what a big difference it has made. Yeah, look, it, it's hugely important. And I deal a lot with the corporate world and, and there has historically been that badge of honour about how little sleep that they can get by on. And while you can get by, you know, the brain will adapt. It's really not good for your long-term health. But look, the good news is that we know that there's a bump that you get over in terms of pregnancy and then you can restore it. It's also really important that we have the best sleep hygiene practices that we can, um, and particularly when you've got a young child so that you can optimize your sleep and not just the amount of time that you're asleep, but the quality of that sleep that you're actually getting. Yeah, I'm obsessed with a sleep app at the moment called AutoSleep that uh, syncs with my Apple Watch. And oh my goodness, that has revolutionized the way I sleep because it looks at your three different stages of sleep. And every morning I wake up, I'm making sure I'm mm. getting that deep, deep, good quality sleep. <laughs> I've got the same app. So look, it's really important that people understand that, you know, things like caffeine to really minimize the amount of caffeine because this is a, a kind of a trap that people go into. They wake up in the morning, they're tired. So they use caffeine to wake themselves up and then they have another hit of caffeine. They don't realize it has a half life of six hours. Um, so, you know, six hours later, half it's still in your system. Twelve hours later, a quarter of it's still in your system. And if you're having multiple exposures, um, then you're going to have that buildup in caffeine, which not only interferes with your ability to get to sleep, but reduces the amount of time you will spend in stage four of sleep, which is that really important sleep. I want to circle back to exercise for a moment. Are there particular types of exercise that are more beneficial for mums? Look, any exercise is good. And, and look, when you look at the research around this, you know, there's a lot of talk about walking. Walking is good for 
older adults, right? People in their 70s and 80s, walking will do it. For those of us that are younger, it doesn't really cut it. So there's a couple of things that are important. One is intensity seems to be really important. And I like to vary intensity. So, you know, what I call activities of daily living, walking, slow jogging, those sorts of things, that's a good base. But then doing some of the higher intensity interval stuff. And it doesn't need to be a 40, 50 minute class. It can be a short five, 10 minute workout. Anything that kind of gets you up and around lactate threshold where your, your body's accumulating lactic acid. Anything that improves blood flow and oxygen. So getting deliberately out of breath is also really important for helping with the brain and with just overall how we feel because... What a lot of people don't realize as well is that exercise actually facilitates the release of important neurotransmitters. So most people have heard of endorphins, and they're the kind of sexy chemicals that get all the plaudits. But we also know that exercise actually increases levels of serotonin, which most people know is important for mood. It's also important for sleep. Exercise also increases um, levels of dopamine that is important for motivation, for pleasure, but also for goal-directed behavior. And it increases levels of, of what's called noradrenaline or norepinephrine. That's pretty much the same thing. That is also an important mood-enhancing chemical. And this is why we see that exercise is actually more effective than antidepressants or anti-anxiety medication because it's increasing, there's a plethora of neurotransmitters that are released as well as the increased blood flow and oxygen. But the key thing that I think is really important for, particularly for mums, is that you don't need to be going to the gym. I'm a massive fan of movement snacks. So just taking 30 seconds and doing, you know, whether it's squats or whatever it may be, um, just getting some blood flow and oxygen, you know, have little if-then behaviours. If I'm heating up my baby's milk, then I'm going to do a minute of exercise and I'm going to tick it off, right? If I I need to go to the shops, then I'm going to go the long route uh, or I'm going to try to get in through a little bit of nature. There's a whole heap of things that you can do to just get little movement snacks throughout the day and particularly when you're super busy because what that will do is it'll also increase your energy, it'll improve your sleep and it'll improve your mood. And look, having kids is such a great excuse to exercise because, you know, you're chasing them around. You've got to get them out of the house, into the park. I love that if and when because you can, you know, if I take them to the park, I'm going to go and do a park bench workout. I'm going to do some push-ups on the back of the park bench. I'm going to do some step-ups onto the bench. I'm going to do some tricep dips and then a couple of burpees on the side. And that's that snackable exercise is so relevant for us mums because a lot of us do not have the time to do the full half an hour drive to the gym, an hour in the gym, half an hour afterwards for the shower. It's just not achievable. Yeah, absolutely. So just think movement snacks, that's the way ahead. And and also out in nature. Getting out in nature is awesome for both you and for your child as well. You know, and you just let a child go. You know, you look at three-year-olds, you got to release your inner three-year-old. Just go out into nature, become curious about it, you know, just get focused on the sights and the sounds around you. You know, those little micro moments of that attention or mindfulness also help with our mood. You know, all of this sort of mixes in together. Absolutely. Moving on to nutrition and our diet and how that can support our brain health, I've never felt sugar cravings as strongly since becoming a mum. And one of my girlfriends, she's a cheese fiend, and she said she wasn't like that before. How do we help to dial down the cravings and the mindless snacking? First thing to understand is that cravings can actually be adaptive. So cravings can be your body telling you that you are 
um, depleted in some nutrients, which happens to a lot of women when they go through pregnancy because, you know, that child, when they're developing and then when they're breastfeeding, is really sucking a lot of nutrients away from mum. So mum has much higher nutrient needs. So the first step that I would say around cravings is, is making sure that you're eating a very energy-dense diet so that you're eating lots of, of, of vegetables, lots of fruit, but also fish and animal protein. And I, and I think, I know there's a big drive towards veganism. I'm really not a fan for it for pregnant women and for breastfeeding mothers and definitely not for kids um, because that DHA is hugely important for the development of the cortex in that third trimester and the first two years. So I'm a big fan for mothers and young children. They need to be having um, plenty of DHA, mostly from fish. Um, lots Your of oily fishes. Oily, oily fish. Salmon is just off the charts in terms of DHA. My kids love the the skin, the crispy skin, or yep. they call it the, the squishy bits. They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, the squishy yeah. bits. And I, I give them mine off my plate. So I'm like, have it, have as much as you want. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and my kids both love salmon when they were growing up. And it's, it's hugely important for that developing brain. So A lot of kids don't like fish. Actually, a lot of adults, a lot of people just don't like fish in general. What are some other less fishy ways of getting your DHAs and your omega-3s? Yeah, so look, it would really be if you don't like fish. I mean, animal meats and things like liver are quite high in it, but a lot of meats have significant amounts in it. Um, unfortunately, it is really the fish and the anchovies and stuff like that that is super, super high in it. But the other thing that you can do is taking a supplement. And look, some people won't like to hear this, but the reality is that a vegetarian and especially a vegan diet is really not good for the developing brain. So I would really encourage those people to be supplementing. If they're vegetarians or vegans looking at an algae-based omega-3 fatty acid, because um, and and the, a lot of them will tell you about you know eating um, linseeds, flax seeds, but the conversion process is so so inefficient. Um, really, it's looking for those fish and animal foods or then going to supplements, I think is really key. But then overall, eating a diet that has plenty of vegetables and plenty of fruit, because what a lot of people don't understand is that it's not just the vitamins and minerals, that the average piece of fruit or vegetables has 10 to 15,000 nutrients. There are thousands of polyphenols and phytochemicals that actually are really important for chemical reactions at a cellular level, right? And often those cravings is basically the body just telling mum, we are nutrient deficient. Um, so, But not that, necessarily in chocolate because no, I crave no, chocolate. That's right. So that, 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 am I nutrient deficient no, in chocolate, no, Paul? No, so, so that's part what of I it, keep telling yeah, myself. <laughs> no. so, so part of it that can then be is that overall just in, in an energy depleted state, particularly when you're breastfeeding, you're you're in an energy, a negative energy balance. It can be that you're just not getting in enough calories. And this, this whole um, social pressure to lose the baby weight quickly, I don't think that should be encouraged at all whenever you're breastfeeding. The, the key priority has got to make sure that mom is getting enough nutrients and enough energy in her diet to be able to provide for her own needs and baby's needs. But getting it through nutrient-rich sources rather than junk food and sugar because that craving can just be I'm low in energy or it can just be I'm stressed, right? Because what happens is, is that your brain has worked out to this point how to resolve stress and anxiety and your brain goes, um, 
I know how to sort that out and bring me some chocolate or bring me a glass of wine or whatever that may be. Because to soothe the anxiety, the brain really wants dopamine. And you get dopamine from those sugary, fatty, rich foods and alcohol. And those are the things that give the dopamine the brain. So it can just be, it's like a Pavlovian response that when I'm stressed, either through just the stresses of bringing up a child and, and normal life and or sleep deprivation, that then there's that increase for that desire for that sugary food that the brain actually knows that is going to resolve the anxiety. So there's a couple of things, right? So for me being an integrationist, it's also about making sure that you're trying to get as good a sleep as you possibly can within the confines of raising a child, Um, but also then that your diet is good, that your water intake is really, really good because you need quite a lot of water and the brain can often confuse um, thirst for hunger and making sure that you've got those nutrients. And then it's about um, having strategies to cope with stress. And this is where I think things like box breathing. So this is where you breathe like the sides of a box. You breathe in for four seconds, hold for four seconds, out for four seconds, hold for four seconds and just repeat, you know, all of those sorts of little strategies when you're feeling a little bit of stress, um, they can all help with those cravings if the cravings aren't adaptive cravings. I've heard you talk in some of your keynotes about cold showers and how that can be helpful for our brain. Mm-hmm. What do they do? So uh, yeah, there's quite a few organizations I'm known as the cold shower guy because I'm, I'm so passionate. It's your military about... background, well, is it? Yeah, well, <laughs> it actually, it, uh, I didn't particularly like them in the military, but uh, I read a, a research paper, a randomized control trial from Netherlands that took a bunch of people, randomly divided them into two groups. And I'll give you the short version of the story. The group who had the cold showers, at the end of the 12-month period, they had a 30% reduction in sickness and absenteeism, right? Which is just off the charts crazy. And what we know is that people who swim all year round and, and so expose themselves to regular cold water, they've got better immune function, better cardiovascular function, and they live longer than aged match controls who do similar amounts of exercise but not in the cold. So what we do know about it is that when you have a cold shower, so 30 seconds minimum at the end of your normal shower, it releases the same stress response proteins that are released during exercise. These are called heat shock and cold shock proteins. And what they do is they turn on another um, wave of gene expression called metabolic priority genes that just make your whole ecosystem function better. And then they create a third wave of gene expression called mitochondrial enzyme genes. And your mitochondria are essentially like batteries for your cells. So we, it, it actually helps to regulate gene expression in a very positive way. The other thing that happens is noradrenaline or norepinephrine is released in the brain and that is the feel-good stress chemical. So when you expose yourself to that 30 seconds of cold water, at the end of it, people who do it regularly say that they feel amazing and people say that when they don't do it, they don't get it. So I, I, I really like it for that variety of reasons. But also Marcus Aurelius, the Roman emperor, and Stoic philosopher nearly 2,000 years ago wrote in his private diary that everybody should expose themselves to regular cold water bathing and vigorous exercise because they both develop character. And it is this character that you will need to face the challenges in your life. So really, he was talking about resilience training 2,000 years ago. 
I love that. I also love how simple it is for us mums because that's something we can do every day. We all have a shower, hopefully, once a day. Does it matter yep. if you do it at night or in the morning? No, it doesn't matter whether you do it at night. The key thing is to do the cold for 30 seconds minimum at the end of your shower. And a big tip for people is to do box breathing. So I do three cycles of that. And, and I initiate it. I breathe in for, you know, I'm kind of in my head going, oh, I don't want to do this. So I just start box breathing. So I breathe in for four, I hold for four, I breathe out for four, and then I slap it to cold because it takes three or four seconds to turn cold. So the idea is it's turning cold just as you're breathing in and you focus all of your attention on that breath in through your diaphragm. And once you've done that breath in and, and the hold, it doesn't really matter, you know, you're, you're, you're through the worst of it. Whereas if you just slap it to cold, you'll have that <gasps> quick shock and, and that amplifies your sympathetic nervous system, which increases the amount of discomfort that you're feeling. So actually combining it with box breathing is a really, really effective technique. And you just, you're focusing on your breathing throughout and you're really just not paying attention to the cold. I hate cold showers, so that is going to be a huge challenge for me. What's one parting tip that you can give mums to help us boost our brain health? Uh, as an integrationist, it's hard for me to give you one. I would say regular exercise, particularly those movement snacks, because exercise does so much for your brain. It's what we call a gateway behavior. It then after you're doing regular exercise, you sleep better. You maybe start to look after your diet better and all of those things. But the other thing that I would say is get yourself a ritual board. Um, so this is a board where you write down a number of little rituals or habits and you put it in your kitchen. So it might be, I'm going to do... Um, 20 movement snacks a week, right? I'm going to do a gratitude ritual five times a week, right? I'm going to um, eat my veggies five serves a day. You know, I'm, I'm going to go for a walk in nature three times a week. Having a lot of those little behaviors that you can just tick off is really key because motivation follows action, not the other way around. So when you set yourself those little targets and you're ticking them off, achievement is a natural reward for the brain and it releases dopamine when you're ticking them off, which then increases your motivation. So I would say is get yourself a ritual board and make sure that exercise and all of those things that we talked about are on that ritual board. Have it somewhere visible in your kitchen where you can see it many times a day um, because that's how you build positive habits. Ticking off our achievements, I love it. Thanks for the chat. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. Healthy Her was presented by me, Amelia Phillips, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Liv Proud, sound production by Matt Nikolic. Theme music composed by Matthew Dwyer, executive producer Jennifer Goggin. To hear more episodes, listen for free at podcastoneaustralia.com.au. Download the free Podcast One Australia app or search Healthy Her. And for more tips and insights on this topic, visit my show notes at ameliaphillips.com.au.